Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Adaptable CEO. It's just Anya this time. I'm without my partner in crime, Tiffany. Unfortunately, she's actually unwell today, but I'm very excited to be joined by a very special guest, Michelle Irving. Michelle is a pioneer in the chronic illness space, the founder of Career and Chronic Illness International. She mentors, coaches, and has created training programs for people with chronic illness to have authentic conversations about their experiences and needs, develop professional boundaries, manage their emotional, mental, and physical capacities, as well as progress in their career of choice. Michelle is an experienced speaker, facilitator, advisor, and coach, hosts the Pajama Interviews podcast, and regular training for DEI specialists. Michelle, welcome to The Adaptable CEO, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to talk to you. We're so excited to have you on. And can you tell everyone where you're actually joining us from today? So today I'm in Bath, the UK. I'm an Aussie, obviously you can hear by my accent, but I'm also traveling in my digital nomad era. Yeah, I'm so excited about that. How long have you been traveling? So I started traveling the 1st of November, 2023. I built my business from my couch for four years. And I, as all of us who have compromised immune systems, you know, super cautious about any travel and now feels like a good time for me. And it's, um, it's a beautiful experience. Most of my clients are US based and this is an opportunity for me to come to Europe and also be with women in the UK and uh, really, really facilitate change in their career. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you for that. We'd like to actually kick off the pod with this question that I think is really exciting. And it's actually, what are the three things that you think about the most? Because we believe that what you think about really consumes your mind and sets a future direction. So for me, the three things I would think about most are really how to reach and connect with women and deliver the best quality service and experience so that they have outcomes. The other thing that I will think about is where am I in my integrity? Where am I in tune with my own wisdom and my own guidance? And the third thing I often think about is what the hell is going on? This is an adventure and it's fun. But I'm really confused about what is going on in my life as I start to uh, travel at this point in time. Yeah, that's fantastic. I particularly love the last one because it's so honest. And I think that to myself all the time, it can be like you're traveling at a million miles an hour. And I'm not sure if you feel the same, but it's like all of these incredible opportunities unfold, but also all of these really strange things happen, whether they be great synchronicities or just sometimes disasters in my life, honestly. Yeah, I think we're in a beautiful open moment, uh, particularly around chronic conditions, disability and the work environment. There is a momentum for change and it's still at the very beginning. So I always think that the work that I do, the work that you do in this space, we are on the avant-garde edge of the future. We're the first who are really working this way. And that means something. That means that we're all connected because there's only a small number of us and that's beautiful. Uh, it also means that it's a bit scary because there isn't, you know, a pathway that's clear before us. And everything that I'm building, I realize it's the very first time somebody has built this. 
and there's been a number of firsts for me in this uh, career pathway and it is both exciting and scary and they're sort of always in the hood. Definitely everything that you've said so deeply resonates and when I think about being at the front line and at the cusp of what we're doing I've felt like it's been something that's been building for a really really long time and Tiff and I were actually at an event together last year and we heard someone come up and speak about the integration of technology and all of that and how there are waves, but then there are also tides. And the waves are these big fads and trends that people jump on. And then there are tides, which are the big slow moving changes, which are actually what you want to be about and what you want to get on board with. And I think what we do is really the tide. It's that slow moving change, but it's something that stays there for a really, really long time. Yeah. And I think part of that is because when you've lived with a chronic condition, that's actually your experience of life is that you might get a bump of capacity with a change of treatment or new medication or, you know, remission at various times. But you learn to build your life on really solid internal foundations. And those experiences, I think, are the tide that is flowing from the inside out into the world. And so while it looks like it's all fresh and new, and to some degree it is, actually the inner work has been going on for a very, very, very long time. It really has. Can you tell me a little bit more about what your life looked like and felt like before you had a chronic illness? Right. So I was about 34 when I first got diagnosed. I'm now 53. So I've lived with a chronic condition for a really long time. And I was in my early 30s. I had just moved to Victoria. I was at the peak of a career track at that time. I was working for Premier and Cabinet in Victoria. And I really went to the doctor because I had these dark circles under my eyes that no makeup would cover and I couldn't. I just, they just kept persisted. What was happening at that time in my life is I had moved to a new city. I was in, you know, a beautiful home that I was renting with my fabulous salary and everything was exciting. And I could see all of my ambition and what was going to be possible for me. And then through, you know, it took about a year, a bit longer for me to get a diagnosis, lots and lots of testing. But then I was handed this, uh, you have to take treatment for this life-threatening illness, otherwise you will be in an organ failure process within five years. Now that's pretty hefty to sort of reconcile with. And the long story short is the problem was that the treatment made me sleep 18 hours a day. Off treatment, I was at yoga three times a week. I was taking hip-hop dance classes, which were a thing at that time that white middle-class young women did, and it was fun. But I had to really reconcile with the treatment and make a decision about the quality of life. And that conversation about the quality of our life had been with me a long time. It's part of my um, guiding question. I have this background in philosophy. So... In that process, I really had to make the decision that I would take my five years and I would have my quality of life and then I would work out what the good death was. And then, of course, treatments changed over that five years. A new treatment came in and thus I'm here speaking to you. Yeah, that's just an incredible thing to reconcile. Were you 
thinking that you'd take those five years of relatively good quality of life and then basically prepare to die? Absolutely. So what I did was there was no way I could reconcile or manage a life where I slept 18 hours a day. The contrast for me was that the medication is part of what was inducing the symptoms. So often, because I have a liver condition, it takes a long time for the liver condition to be at a point where you actually have symptoms. So mine was caught very early, really. So I made a list. I made a list of what is important to do before I die. I can't do everything. What what can I do and what's on my list? And of course, travel was one of the things. So I made a list and I went and saw the places that I wanted to see. Not everything. But then I kept monitored. I didn't reject treatment in terms of I still went to my hospital appointments. I still was under medical supervision. And then there was a day I agreed, I found a great specialist and I was very clear with myself. The day he said to me, you take treatment today, I trusted that I would take treatment because I'd been through a number of specialists by this point. And that day came. I left the office, went to a routine appointment, uh, had had a biopsy and he looked at me and said, you don't leave this hospital without treatment today. This is very close and we we don't know if we can bring this back across the line, but we we have to give it, you know, we've got a good chance, but we have to hit it with everything. And then I was bed bound for a very, very long period of time with treatment, but we managed to stay on the right side of the line. I'm just kind of blown away. I'm just processing that whole experience because, yeah, a lot of parts of my experiences, I guess, can relate to that. And I think, you know, that period where you were, I guess, preparing for what could be next. Did you then feel that once you had the treatment and you realized, yes, you know, I'm going to live a longer life because I'm being treated adequately. Did any part of you feel like you were on borrowed time and that you needed to make this borrowed time really impactful and that motivated some of the work that you're doing now, do you think? I think there's parts of it. I think what happened is it took about two and a half years before I was able to work properly at a really good rate again. And then within two years, I got hit with another chronic condition, which is a vertigo condition, which had me back in bed 24-7. I was always amazed that I was still living, but I was very deep in the chronic experience for many, many years then. And I had vertigo 24-7. It again took me a long time to be able to go back to the office. I was able to work because my brain functioned. My body just didn't. Whereas on the other treatment, brain fog and that was just so significant that I just, it just, um, it took a long time to recover all of my faculty. What I did think is the guiding question is what is the quality of life? What is important to me? And I felt that I had something that people kept coming and asking me to share. They wanted to understand why I was still in such a positive relationship with myself. They watched me negotiate at work great remote working conditions a decade before COVID and people wanted to be connected to whatever it was that I had found in myself and so I basically you know people would ask me at the photocopier or people would ask me to talk to a friend and then eventually it was like okay this is a lot I got, I need to be paid for this because this is a lot of outgoing time at this point and that was part of the business awareness is that what I had was a value 
and that it was appropriate for me not to be giving it away under a martyr archetype within self where it was draining my energy and then I didn't have resources but rather for it to be a fair and equal exchange and that really started for me the awareness that there was something and then what was the appropriate container for that to be shared in so that it actually was shared in a professional way rather than we can have a coffee conversation, here's a few things I did, off you go. <laughs> it's like that's not actually great for the other person. It's helpful a little, but you need a much longer-term methodical process to navigate your career while living with chronic conditions. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that realisation that you've just detailed is so important for a lot of people that don't necessarily have something clear-cut that they can see a clear value exchange in. But you obviously have skills, you obviously have talent, you've obviously got something that people want, people need, and understanding that that is something that you can create a business from and it's not something that you just have a conversation about over a coffee, I think is a really, really important learning. Before we go into the work that you do, I just wanted to understand your perspective because I have these conversations with people all the time that there's chronic illness and there's disability. Some people identify with one, some people identify with both, some people identify with neither. What do you see as the difference between chronic illness and disability? Do you think that there is one? So I think there are distinctions. I think that for me, I never thought of my chronic illness as a disability because disability was something that you could see. This was my absolute naivety. And I was also aware that my chronic condition was incredibly disabling. Not being able to walk was a big problem for me in terms of on and off treatment and I wish that I had identified as it having a disability nobody talked about it because the issue with a chronic illness is everybody expects you to get well I was still thinking but off treatment I'm well so it doesn't qualify but I started to become aware that the chronic condition was incredibly disabling. And then very, very, very late in my working career in government and corporate, I started to look at disability pol uh, policies, not even to use them, but to guide some of my language and conversation. Now, I absolutely see myself as in uh, a member of both. I definitely have an invisibility disability that's dynamic that turns some days I'm absolutely fantastic and other days I am really disabled in my capacity. And I think the nature of a chronic condition that has both this dynamic possibility but also this psyche of engaging with illness within our culture has its own pathway and there's a lot of conversations that nobody wants to talk about chronic illness or that's something that when you're better life will begin. And that is a very particular psychological phenomenon to work with and to have a completely different conversation about. Definitely. And I think you raised so many good points. And I think one of the things, because growing up, I didn't really identify with either. Then I got into a period when I was quite unwell. I found chronic illness and I thought, yes, okay, this fits in with me. I have a chronic illness got a bit older and then I was like, actually, this is a disability for the same reasons that you identified. But then 
becoming more comfortable in the disability community, I realized that there are actually quite a lot of people with disability who don't necessarily have that illness aspect. Like they might not necessarily go in and out of hospital a lot or see a lot of specialists, but they have something that affects their functional capacity, but it might not necessarily be something that makes them like unwell, for lack of a better word. And I thought, well, you know, I, I still do have this kind of illness aspect and the sick aspect to what I experience. So it's interesting to kind of navigate both of those worlds at the same time and have those distinctions between them, because I think so often it's either the distinct or you lump them in the same box. Yeah. And I think that it's a beautiful conversation. To me, it's about the conversation. I have many friends who definitely identify and live with a disability, but don't live with a chronic illness experience. And this is an open conversation in our community because it's all education. It's all listening. It's all sharing together. There's nothing more important. There's nothing but humans, humans conversing about their experience. That's all it is. Yeah, and it's a beautiful way to put it. I think, like you've said, it needs to be an open conversation. Can you give our listeners an overview of the work that you do and what you're most proud of? Sure. So the work that I do is I help women in particular at this point in time, but we'll be expanding into more corporate programs that include men, navigate their career while living with a chronic condition. And a lot of our focus is about giving you the tools to both conceptually see yourself as grounded and emotionally really connected to what's important to you and what's in your heart and have healthy professional conversations and boundaries about what you need but also ultimately for you to find and be with the optimal way of work that works for you all your desires and ambitions and capacities and works for your body. And that work comes through three ways. You can access that work through programs that I run. And the one I am just in love with at the moment is called Elation. And we can talk a little bit about how that came to be. We've just finished a round with a fabulous group of women from all across the world. You know, Australia, UK, USA, very different living experiences. But fundamentally, everybody got terrific outcomes by going through this process. And I call it the ultimate professional development program because it's the only thing in the world tailored to your experience of trying to navigate career with a chronic condition in a very sustainable personal way. And the other ways people work with me is either privately, particularly executives managing their chronic conditions. And finally, we're uh, running speaking awareness and corporate training programs for companies. That all sounds fantastic and must keep you incredibly busy, but also incredibly connected with a lot of women that are quite like-minded, I'd imagine. What do you think the importance is of actually creating and finding a community? And how have you done that in what you've created? So I think community is essential and it, it, you have to be discerning about which one for a whole lot of reasons. Some people start with a peer support group that might help at certain phases, but you can at times outgrow that. For me, community has always been about where are the like-minded women who are open, learning and processing themselves. And this is a fundamental piece of the work that I do. Everything that I do is designed for you to process yourself. It's not my idea about what the model is. It's not what I think you should do. This is about your wisdom guiding you, but you being 
a part of a system that supports and facilitates you to access, trust that and act on that. For me, community is I have, you know, communities that women in the programs, we always have a private community for them going through the program. And then there's a big, beautiful social connection, obviously, that we all have on Instagram where we're connected together or LinkedIn as well. The other part is that you as the business owner have to have a community. And I've been traveling with a business mentor for four years now. And that is a very, very, very important part of my life where I get to turn up. Nobody else in that you know, arena has a chronic condition. So there's lots of education at different times, but I get to be held. And that's what community, particularly if you're working on, on your own skills or taking risks or navigating something hard, you want to be held so that you can have the meltdown and you can get the insight and you can have the triumph and you can have the joy. Definitely. That's a, such a beautiful way of putting it, just being held it gives you that feeling, that warmth. So in creating your coaching programs, how did you do it then, especially to make it in a way that can be quite, you know, self-directed? Was it a combination of research or really just putting together your lived experience? So really what I did is through my lived experience, I had a very clear question that was guiding me. And the question was, how can I use this experience to be more connected to myself? Because it was pretty clear to me how this experience could really disconnect me from myself and disconnect me from my power. And over many years, I tried and tested lots of different tools that I built for myself. So an example of a tool just for everybody in the audience to get clarity is I was really tired and it did not help my psychology to think that I was either all up or all down in a crash. So the sense that I was either on or off had capacity or didn't. That was psychologically exhausting. And it was also just a lot of conversations that didn't actually go anywhere that was helpful. What I worked out for myself is that actually my, expand, my capacity expanded and contracted. And everybody's physical, emotional, and mental capacity expands and contracts. Once I had that piece for myself, then I could talk about what my baseline was. That was my contraction. And then I could explain to managers that my capacity expanded, but it wasn't an on and off switch. And that I worked out a tool to basically run through everything that I did and work out okay, am I in expansion or contraction with this tool? So mentally, emotionally, physically at the work, can I go to the office? All of that process, then they became the tools that I now teach in a very methodical way so that every tool builds on top of each other. So it was great to have the knowledge. It was great to have the tools. It was great to be with clients what I didn't have was a business platform or approach about how to deliver this, particularly at the time I was building it, I was expecting to be, and I was one-on-one -on -one and then in hospitals. And I followed my intuition. I made a connection with a woman who runs online businesses. And this is in December, 2019. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to run something online, but she seems really savvy about how to run a business. So I'll sign up. And I said to her, and she laughs her head off every time we remember this moment. I was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do online, but I'll run workshops in hospitals and I'll work this out with you learning about your model. 
Anyway, I ran my first online Facebook event uh, in March 2020 after about four weeks in the program and I've never run something anywhere else. So that's how the business got built. I had my skills, but then I went and got the support that was going to make it possible to really develop and learn something new. Yeah, that's fantastic. It must be so funny to look back now and think, no, I didn't think online and it's your intuition that guided you down that path. So your work and like type of coaching seems quite creative and quite spiritually driven. And also hearing you speak about, you know, following your intuition and this guiding question as well. Why do you think that you've been drawn to this approach in your coaching? So it's always been with me. I am clear that we are beings, we're animals at one level. And we have instincts and those instincts we have taught, particularly women have been taught to override their body, to override their instinct. It takes a lot of training and a lot of pushing down to become compliant. And that is exactly what we have all been trained to do. However, compliance leads you into the model of capitalism where you are always terrified of your survival where you feel that your place in the world is uh, dictated by somebody who's more important and your value is often dictated there. When the truth is your intellect, your creativity, your physical capacity, your emotional heart, all of those capacities, including your money and your strategy and whatever it is you share in the world, those are your resources. They're for you. And you get to decide how much you give, with whom and when, and then how that's negotiated with others. So for me, uh, the approach for myself has always been towards understanding that I am sovereign and I live in a culture that will consistently try to tell me I'm not and to frighten me. And my job is to always come back to the ground of my sovereignty and find the right next step for myself. Because everybody thinks intuition is going to tell you what's going to happen for the future forever and make you safe. That's not what intuition does. Intuition tells you the next right step for you. And so I've learned through the evidence, all I need to do is take the next right step. And if I get off path, I'll always get the redirection. There'll always be the slap in the face, particularly, you know, if I'm in the wrong relating dynamic or if I have been, you know, overt or too hyped up in my own process and I haven't taken care with somebody else's heart, I'll get the slap in the face. That process I have learned to deeply trust and to go with what feels right to me, even when it seems very no evidence, no reason for taking that process or that path, because the evidence is in that every time I do, it is the right next step for me. And so it's really important when we're living with chronic conditions, we have tremendous access to our inner world. And this is where we build that strength and capacity. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful. And just while you're saying it, I can kind of feel just emotion in me because things are like pennies are dropping that I hadn't necessarily let drop before Yes, in how your coaching pulls together that inner knowing of, you know, what we need to do when you provide the resources and tools, but also that link to autonomy, which is really quite rare in the medical system, but just, yeah, that intuition, knowing your next step and 
I had this experience. I am quite spiritual in my own sort of practices and I have quite a strong intuition, but when it comes to medical things, when you're stripped of autonomy, you tend to ignore it or I tend to ignore it. Yes. I had this surgery that really changed the trajectory of my life a few years ago. And the night before that surgery, I was awake the entire night in tears and I was so terrified And I thought, you know, I've never been scared before a surgery before. And I just knew in my heart and in my gut, it was the wrong decision. I shouldn't have gone. I shouldn't do it. But I didn't feel the power and the trust in myself to call it off. And that was really what set off a lot of negative dominoes for my physical body. And then, of course, you know, emotional distress and everything else. So I think it is so beautiful that you put those elements back into coaching and give people their power back when the system that they're surrounded by, especially when they're sick, does so much to take it away. So yeah, you know all of this already, but thank you. It's my pleasure. And I think what you're highlighting is when we speak truth, we feel it. That's what it is. Like you feel it in your system and everybody can kind of get this woo-woo idea of intuition. I just think of it as inner guidance. It comes from your instinct, whatever your belief system, there is part of you that is always got more information than your mind can ever process. And your autonomy is the purpose of living. It is for you to stand in the power that you do have, to be with the power, to sit on your sacred ground, whatever the language works for you. Because when you are there, that is where you have access to your power and that is where the decision-making should be. When we live in a culture at work with the medical condition where it looks like the decision-making should be with somebody else, you are outside of your own access to your own power. So the way I see it as you can take advice from anybody you choose, you know, and you can be discerning about whether or not you're going to, how you're going to weight their opinion, including in the medical. Yes, the medical people have way more training, way more evidence base, way more understanding than I will ever have about my body. However, they are still the advisor and I am still the decision maker. Now, my relationship with them is, am I going to take on board this advice and this decision? And I don't need to know how to do the surgery of a liver or whatever that is. What I do need to know and be accountable for with myself is the relationship I have with them and the decision. And it's not that if we make a decision or we go with something else and there's a negative consequence that we have done something wrong. No, we just live in a culture and we're following the best information and advice internally that we have at the time. The next piece that happens though, which people often forget, is that you'll always be redirected back to your power through these processes. And that's what we want to continue to follow. And this is essential at work because most of work tells you that the power is held in other people or in the company or in the company's policies. Companies are just people. That's all it is. Yes, there's multinationals and we could we could talk about the ecosystem. But at the end of the day, where is your power and where are you powerless? I don't have power to write the entire economic system of this world. And I don't have the power to completely radically change medical bias. But I do have the power to be with myself, make the decisions, take the guidance and take the next right step for me. 
and find the doorway that takes me deeper and deeper and deeper into what is in my heart and the gifts that I am here to share in the world. And we want to concentrate our power and our decisions where we do have power. And we absolutely need to know where we don't have power. Because if you are trying to get power in a place where you don't have power, you are exhausting yourself mentally and emotionally. Definitely. You've just said that beautifully. I'm so looking forward to listening back to this so many times over I think that idea of being the ultimate decision maker, having the advisors around you, but knowing when you just can't get power in situations, not exhausting yourself and releasing control of things that you just ultimately can't control, I think is just so important. I heard this really beautiful thing a few years ago that when you come in with a talent or a gift, you also come in with an audience and you have certainly come in with an audience. We mentioned earlier that you have a lot of clients in the US market and you hear so many stories of the US being a place where products and services first succeed and then they come to Australia and that's kind of the secondary market. Did you make a conscious decision to pursue the US first or did it just happen organically? Can you tell me a bit of that story and why you think that you've been so successful in the US? So... This is really funny and an exact example of everything I've just talked about with, you know, beautiful force. I had this program that I was going to release. I had spent 12 months developing it. I thought at the beginning with my business mentor, it was a four-week program. It turned out to be a six-month program. That's a whole fun story. However, what I had in my heart, so we're talking uh, late 2020, early 2021, most people, particularly in Australia, but also in the US are navigating lockdown. And I had this idea to run a global summit around chronic conditions with women talking about it from an empowered position. And I looked, there were people I was following on Instagram. So I was following Jacinta Parsons, a fantastic Australian broadcaster. I was following Samantha Wills, who's an international entrepreneur, very successful Aussie, and was also talking about her experience with endometriosis. And this idea kept pinging me. So I have this internal relationship. You know, when the idea keeps coming and you get really irritable because it's a stupid idea. And I said, look, to my inner world, I will send a message on Instagram. And if Jacinta or Samantha says yes, sure, I'll do it. So off I sent the Instagram message within basically an hour to 1.5 hours, both came back and said yes. And my response internally was, frack, now I actually have to do the thing, right? Now I have to do the thing. So what I did is I put it out on Twitter when it was actually a beautiful place to put things out and on Instagram. And I connected with a whole lot of US women who came and were authors or were running podcasts. And so off I went and created this summit. Because I had connected with these amazing US women, the audience built with US women. And through that process, word of mouth is what spread. I have done no advertising. I'm an Aussie at the time sitting at the bottom of Australia and Melbourne. I had clients in Washington, D.C., and that circle just kept 
growing. Then as the business progressed, it was obvious to me that the US market, there were more people out talking about chronic conditions. There was more opportunity potentially. It was going to take time to educate the market in Australia. You and I found our way with each other at this time. And so I did then start to target the US, not through Facebook advertising or whatever, but through cultivating connection with American women. And of course, women in my programs, I came to understand a lot more about the US medical system and how just horrendous it is if you live with a chronic condition and how limited your choices are without social security and stability underneath you, how incredibly volatile the working conditions or the sense of security with your job can be and also how women had navigated it and so all of that led to more and more development more and more um, clients more and more wisdom and the other thing is because I am teaching you tools to navigate the chronic condition in your career with your power with your focus, but a very methodical way. The reality is that the tools work whether you're working for NATO, whether you're working in Washington, DC, whether you're in Melbourne, in bed, and looking for a speaking opportunity virtually. All of them, the tool and the process works no matter where you are physically or what culture you live in because it's actually about you. Yeah, perfect. That's such a good story. I love it. And just the fact that you reached out on Instagram, not expecting them to reply, they came so quickly and it's just one thing after the other. It's like a snowball rolling, gaining traction, gaining size. It's a fantastic story. And the worst that could have happened was they didn't reply. And I think it's just a testament to going out, doing it and listening to that inner voice that keeps bugging you and annoying you. I would have been so relieved if they said no, because I wouldn't have had to then pursue and expand and my nervous system wouldn't have had to meet the edge of my growth. And that's really what we're doing when we take a risk is our nervous system is expanding to be able to hold that level of uncertainty. Absolutely. You've described it perfectly. That's exactly how I feel about a lot of things. So some of your clients are actually very high profile and you need to sign an NDA before working with them, which just excites me so much. What do you find is the biggest challenge to adapting to chronic illness when they're at the peak of success from working with these women? So there's a couple of big things and uh, we now have the research to back this up out of Melbourne University. There's research on leaders with chronic conditions. So the big things are either you've gone out sick and people have witnessed it and you're coming back, but people expect you and you feel the pressure to prove your value and worth in holding the position, uh, particularly in uh, US corporates, but also here um, in Australia and the UK. What we need to do in this process is give you the confidence to, yes, do your job, but do it in ways that work for you and your body. And that is the biggest reconciliation, is for you to trust that what is good for you and your body is good for the work. The other thing that comes with this process is that we often feel there's been urgings about what the career of choice actually is. So you might be in your career of choice or there might be a way you want to sidestep or go actually into something else. And I'll give you an example. 
I have a beautiful woman who is working in DC um, for a big US organization. And she had been ill with Lyme disease for a very long period of time. And she had returned to work. Her job was very demanding. It was in the heart of conversations around power and very, very big world political events. She wanted to go overseas. And she'd had that dream but hadn't been able to do it. And she was in a job which didn't actually enable her to go live overseas, but this was her dream in her heart. And she felt super stuck, super stuck. She also wanted to go through IVF or have a child. So she was right in the cusp of all these life decisions. We did the work together to tap into actually acknowledging what the longing and desire is because we've buried it or we don't think we can do it. And then we did the work to methodically work out how might this be possible. Now, a lot of times we think this is an external strategy. It's not. We changed the way in which she was emotionally relating to herself and mentally and emotionally relating to others so that she did come out and start to shine more and trust more of her capacity. She was at a high, very visible job, but she was at the table with a whole lot of other high visible people. The result was within six weeks, the opportunity that didn't exist, they created a role and she was able to go work overseas in Europe and then oscillate between Europe and the US and a whole new pathway opened up because we got her connected to her power and starting to speak and relate from that power. And so the challenge is always trusting self for what you want and then really your energy backing your words. And you may have to change the way you relate to people. And she absolutely did. She had to change from a bunker mentality and feeling like she wasn't getting the recognition into a process where actually she shifted her energy and all of a sudden the opportunities opened. Yeah, that's incredible. So incredible to hear that story and that the role was just created, especially when you can feel in a position where the doors are closed, you're trapped and things won't get any better. Um, For a lot of people listening, unfortunately, they're not going to be in a very high profile job or they may not be in a really high profile job. And I think when you're in the absolute pits with disability, with chronic illness, facing adversity, it can be really difficult to view a positive future for yourself. What do you tell your clients when they're facing so much uncertainties? They may not be in a role. They may be in that kind of really deep, dark despair. So there's a couple of things. The first thing is, and everybody can find it on the website, is I've developed a map for you that are the five stages of navigating career and chronic illness. The first stage we start with is off-ramping. And the reason is because that's often a lot of our experiences. We off-ramp from career or we um, downsize, you know, from full-time to part-time. And then the second stage is once you've been on medical leave, if you've completely off-ramped, is you on-ramp back to work. Even if you're going back full time or you've been in hospital for weeks or months, there's a process where you have to reacclimatize back to the daily experience of working. And the next stage is really important. So, stage three of this is the new. Even if you're going back to the same role, even if you feel stuck at that point in time, it is still a process of the new, new uh, process back. Sometimes there's a change in the team. And so it takes time to acclimatize to the new. And the final two stages are test and redesign, which is where we spend 80% of our time. Now, here's the important bit is the fifth stage. 
everything you have been through with a chronic condition naturally leads you into authentic leadership. And if you want to learn how that is, there's a totally free resource video. You can go to the website, pick that up, and it'll explain that piece, which is longer than the time that we have in this moment. But the thing about the authentic leadership is you have to lead yourself. I'm sorry that it's this way. I'm sorry that you have to learn these tools for yourself and have to navigate conversations with people that haven't had this conversation with others or have bias. I'm genuinely sorry. However, that is the fact. And all of us are working to shift that culturally. But this is the point is you don't know how to lead yourself into the next stage. So here's the tip. What you want to do at a fundamental piece is find the tasks, the job, the insight, the advertising, listening to somebody, find the piece where you feel energy in your system and your energy is building in your system. Because for sure, if you're stuck, there's a lot of energy going out of your system and the work is either draining or, which is most often the case, you're good with the work, the people and the environment are draining your emotional energy. And that's about boundaries. That's about changing the way you relate so that they shift. And it's often about your energy matching your words. Because if you're exhausted, we have to find a way for that energy of vibrancy to match your word when you set the boundary. Because if you're exhausted, people will find a way to go around you and keep exhausting you. So these are the ways if you're stuck, I want you to know it's not the end of the story. And being stuck is actually one of the first stages before you can make it into the new or the next process for you. It's a natural stage in anybody's career to feel stuck. It's just we have to find the right pathway for you and the new doors that are going to open. So beautifully put, and I'm sure we will all be on your website looking at these five stages. And yeah, there was just so much warmth with that apology. Like, I'm sorry that we have to work things out for ourselves as well, but it's worth it. And it's the only way that it can be done in the end. And I think that realizing that no one's going to come and rescue you and it's going to make it easier is the fastest way through the crap, unfortunately, a lot of the time in almost every way. But in life, there's a lot more than just career, unfortunately. And there are relationships too, which can be equally as challenging at times, both romantic and platonic. With chronic illness thrown in, how do you manage personally or helping your clients through getting into new relationships or breakups or breakdown of relationships, especially within the context of chronic illness? Yeah, so a lot of the same tools apply. And we have to know what our circle of wellness is emotionally to interact and be with others. And your relationships are destined for you. The people whose hearts are destined to connect with your heart are here. They're looking for you in heart connection as much as you are looking for them. Sometimes there is a sifting and sorting in relationship and you might let some go in this chronic condition. What I can tell you is everybody will face adversity and there's a way in which understanding your value is also as important as understanding how the chronic condition affects you because I can guarantee every person listening to this podcast if you are here with us 
your heart is one of the most generous hearts on the planet. And there can be ways in which we have this incredibly beautiful, generous heart. And because we have been taught to be compliant or prioritize other people, hello, capitalism, patriarchy, hyper-capitalism on top of a human. It's it's not your fault that these are patterns that you have if you notice codependency or trying to wire out through somebody else to get a sense of value. We're mammals. We're meant to be connected. And it's also the case that we have been trained to prioritise everybody else's well-being over our own. That doesn't make for great relationships, particularly if you've got two people trying to do that. There's no cut through. So this is not about blaming anybody else. What I'm interested in is you having the right discerning match for your heart and generosity and also having great tools around that connection so that it's authentic. Because when we don't say what we mean, when we say yes, when we mean no, it always unravels and you can redirect there are times when I say yes when I mean no now and I catch myself and I'm so irritated with myself and I'm like this is what you were trained to do this is the default system and I immediately work to correct myself so that I say no when I actually mean no and my yes is actually only from my vibrant yes And that's part of the tool. So humans are messy. I'm messy. You're messy. You know, we've had, we've been connecting for a long time. We thought we might do something together. We weren't going to do something together. We're messy. But our hearts authentically can connect. And that is where we want to base it. And we want to be discerning about whose heart we are connecting with, with the very beautiful generosity and vulnerability of who we are. Definitely. That's so beautiful and really comforting. And I'm sure everyone that heard that would be really comforted by it. To be a bit vulnerable, I think a lot of people listening would actually really appreciate your insights because you've just had beautiful insights this entire conversation around disclosure about disability or chronic illness when you're first meeting someone and going into a new relationship. When I meet someone, like, of course, I have, you know, an online presence that says that I have a disability or chronic illness. You Google me, it's all there. It's very difficult for me to hide. But I've found that I actually have a tendency of laying it all out on the table in a first conversation. And as much as I will deny it, and people can go back to this for evidence, it's almost as a, this is all the stuff that I've got to deal with. Take it or leave it. And I hope that you leave if it's going to be too much for you. Like almost as a defense mechanism of putting up a wall and pushing people away. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about that. But also if you have any recommendations for people on when they disclose, how much they disclose and how that fits into just being a full authentic person. Yeah. So this is exactly what I was just talking about, discerning in stages. So when you put it all out there, What you're saying to the other person is, this is all my mess, basically, on the first date or second date, and it's your job to work out your relationship to it and let me know. And you have the beautiful self-awareness to understand that it's a defense mechanism because you don't want to let somebody close if they're going to, like, give you grief around the process. However, the person's just turned up and they're like, they've got all of their mess and all the things that they're hiding in cupboards or not. And I remember this so clearly that I shared this um, with a man on a date that I then went on to have this magnificent relationship 
relationship with. Um, we both build our businesses. We live together and we're still very close. But he was so clever and savvy. He said, can I talk about my chronic conditions now? And this was the authenticity of it. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe it's a little more about the other person and their stuff as well as mine. And it was a and this is one of the reasons it was such a beautiful, authentic relationship. Relationships, for want of a better um, metaphor, are assignments. They're like, we've got this heart. We're going to bump hearts together. We're going to feel connection, but we're also going to bump up against our humanity and our messiness. When we lead with all of our messiness, we miss the opportunity for the hearts to connect human to human as well. What you're basically doing is asking the other person to meet all your vulnerability. And that person may not even be worthy of all of that disclosure. So here's how I recommend you do it. One, I'm the same as you. You can Google it. You can find it. I don't put on profiles that I'm you know, living with a chronic condition or whatever first up. I lead with, I trust myself deeply. I love generously. Like I actually lead with the qualities of the humanity that are going to be the right match for me and that are my qualities. And then as things progress, I will say, I also live with a chronic condition. These are part of my experiences or this is my work. Here's the number one key to this whole process. We have a relationship with chronic conditions and disability, which says this is a problem. This is something we have to get over. We have to push through whatever. And we lead with it as if it still in our culture has a flaw. It's not. In fact, it is the doorway to your power and it is the very essence in many ways, our relationship with it, to our wisdom, to our intellect, to our literally adaptability to our empathy, to all these incredible qualities. And it connects us to our heart and we are deeply connected to what is happening emotionally and in the world. That is a beautiful quality for humans to connect with and that is what humans are looking for. We want to be connected authentically. So in this conversation, authenticity is the quality. Authenticity is not necessarily about disclosing everything. Authenticity is the quality of the presence and listening to the other as well as to self. So I'm not sure if that helps and gives guidance for you, but that is how I work with it. It's a discerning process for my nervous system as well as for their nervous system. Yeah, that's beautiful. That really, really does help. And I think you've just out outlined it so beautifully and also picked up on that point that is, I guess, the point of tension for me that when I do lay it all out there, it's because of my awareness that society does not understand chronic illness and disability sees it as a burden or as a red flag. And it's almost a reflection of internalized ableism that I might still have, really. Because if it's turned back on me and they say, oh, it's, it's not a problem, do you think that it's a problem? And I say, no, it's not, because it's actually the thing that I'm most proud of. But if it genuinely is the thing that I'm most proud of, then why do I lead with it as something that is to try and push someone away? Exactly. And this is the connection of trust with yourself in that sense of, you can trust your heart. That's actually what you're trusting. You can trust your heart and it will let you know. But it, we're humans, all relationships are learning assignments. So we're going to learn. You're going to learn things about the other person and you're going to be like, what? That I never heard of that. What is that? I've got no idea. What? That's what you do. I Really, what is this? But that is what 
relationships are is coming into deeper and deeper connection together. So beautifully put. Thank you so much. So Michelle, what do you see as the future for people with chronic illness and disability? You can take this in whatever direction you'd like. So I think we're in a very open moment in culture. I'm super excited. I think the future is beautiful. And I think it's beautiful because I think we are authentic leaders and we have skills that this world desperately needs and is hungry for at this moment. And we are a huge percentage of the population that is in many ways coming online in our power. The other thing I think, reason I think this is that we are an ecosystem now. We are an economical system. We are the women who hire me, you know, I also then hire women with chronic conditions as part of my business. I'm always looking for the connection with the woman with the chronic condition or the disability in the economy. And I'll give you one very quick example. I'm currently traveling. I'm in an Airbnb. I walked into this Airbnb, only booked for a few days. And I thought, gosh, I really like it here. I really feel at home. I immediately text the owner and said, I think I'd like to stay I see you've got some couple of bookings, long um, intuitive process. In fact, she just booked off time for maintenance. In fact, the apartment was available for the following six weeks. As we got to know each other, it turns out she lives with MS and this is her business and this is her economy. Now, I could never have searched the world yet for the person with the chronic condition who has Airbnbs. However, trusting how nourishing the space was, it was just set up for somebody with everything labelled to find everything. It had everything you can imagine that you might need. It's the reason I was so comfortable. So I think the future is bright. I think we are doing it personally. I think we are doing it with our companies. And I think that companies are starting to get on the page, even if it's from how big this market is, it is no longer going to be possible to be in this future and this economy without us taking up all the appropriate leader positions in terms of representation, in terms of adaptability, in terms of what we are here to do on this world. And we're here to do more in this world than live in our chronic condition. We are here to share the wisdom that we have found internally. And a one final piece, the person who has done this brilliantly, and if you haven't heard her work or seen her, go, go now, is Sarah Marie Ramy, who wrote The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness. Sarah lives with ME, CFS, CPRS, a lot of chronic conditions. She wrote that book, A Line in Her Head, over 10 years. It took her 10 years to produce that book. Um, I'm not saying that you need to work out how, if you're in, um, in bed with these conditions, you don't need to work out your purpose or how to do all this in this moment but you can trust the longing in your heart because that is the compass. She trusted it and her gift to the world is extraordinary. Fantastic. I really do wholeheartedly agree that the future is so, so bright and this is only just the beginning. My final question to you, Michelle, is what advice would you give to your younger self with all you know now about life and business? I would say it's going to be okay. I know it feels frightening and I know it feels scary and those feelings are appropriate and you can learn to be with them and hold them and it is going to be a hundred percent okay. You've got what you need inside to navigate this. 
So beautiful. Thank you so, so much. And I really, really appreciate you being a guest on The Adaptable CEO. You have given us so many insights and just absolutely so much warmth. I think that everyone listening has just felt held by you and hugged by you and felt the absolute authenticity of your heart. So thank you so much. And thank you to everyone that's tuned in and listened. And I look forward to being with you again next week. So thank you. Thank you so much.